as the share price is up. And yet, if you look at the uh, the ratings for, say, MSCI and uh, and FTSE uh, ESG indices, uh, there is almost no correlation between the uh, mm-hmm. the two of them. So, you know, if they're not pulling in the same direction, they won't get the um, uh, the results. Mm. So if it isn't through investment and if it isn't through people maybe taking more note about where they do put their money, how do we achieve things like lower carbon emissions? Because I always imagine that, you know, this investment angle was one of the, the ways of doing it. I think it's a very bad way of achieving it. If, if the government wants to, uh, to achieve its aim, it should um, achieve its aim uh, through uh, rules, for example, rather than to expect the, uh, the stock market to do its heavy lifting for it. So essentially, say you have a, um, a uh, carbon-intensive business, uh, to get around these rules, you'd say, fine, I'll divest it, and it ends up in the hands of, um, of say, private equity, who may be far less interested in, in uh, what Greenpeace has to say than, um, or Friends of the Earth have to say than, um, uh, than other institutional investors. It's not an efficient way of doing the job. Okay. Well, it's a very interesting discussion. We're going to have to follow up on this a bit more in the future, Nick. Thanks very much for telling us about that. That's Nick Smith, who's Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 right now is still flat. Australia is slipping a little bit further into negative territory, down a third of a percent. Uh, Looks like the Hang Seng Index is going to open a third of a percent lower as well in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Stay tuned to Radio 3. Back chats coming up with Hugh Chiverton and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, cloudy with occasional showers. Temperatures around 24 degrees during the day and the showers are going to be more frequent in the following couple of days. It's 23 degrees right now, 88% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. The U.S. has announced it will begin sharing its supplies of AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine with other countries once a safety review has been completed. Up to 60 million doses could be exported within months. The decision comes as the administration faces criticism that it's hoarding jabs. The White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told journalists the American public could rely on other vaccines. Given the strong portfolio of vaccines that the United States has already authorized and that is available in large quantities, and given AstraZeneca is not authorized for use in the United States, we do not need to use AstraZeneca in our fight against COVID over the next few months. The United States Vice President Kamala Harris has held a virtual meeting with the Guatemalan president to discuss how to reduce the number of Guatemalans attempting to cross into the U.S. Ms. Harris said Washington wanted to tackle the root causes of migration. We are looking at the issue of poverty and the lack, therefore, of economic opportunities, the issue of extreme weather conditions and the lack of climate adaptation, as well as corruption and the lack of good governance, and violence against women, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, and Afro-descendants. A new study on miscarriage has estimated at least 23 million miscarriages occur every year worldwide, though the actual tally is likely to be substantially higher. The research published in The Lancet analysed data from more than 4 million pregnancies in seven countries, including Sweden, the US and Britain. Here's the BBC's Juliet Mazumda. Around one in seven pregnancies end in miscarriage, according to this new analysis, and around one in 100 women suffer three or more losses in a row. 
The researchers found black women were 43% more likely to lose a pregnancy and say further studies are needed to establish why. Scientists are looking into whether it could be related to other health issues that more commonly affect black women, such as fibroid conditions and autoimmune disorders. Having a miscarriage can also take a massive psychological toll, doubling the risk of depression and almost quadrupling the risk of suicide. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Ada Wong. Ada, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're talking about poverty alleviation in the mainland and Hong Kong and success for Nomadland. China has declared complete success in eliminating extreme poverty, with President Xi Jinping hailing the lifting of 850 million people out of destitution as an unprecedented accomplishment unmatched by any nation in modern history. There is no other country that could achieve such a remarkable poverty alleviation progress within a such a short time, he said. How effective is China's extreme poverty alleviation scheme in reality? And how does it approach the problem? Are there lessons for other countries? countries to learn and in particular what about Hong Kong what sort of progress have we made in reducing poverty is inequality a more serious problem let us know your thoughts you can leave uh, your comments on our Facebook page backchat on RTHK Radio 3 you can email us backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us and our number is 233-88266 and after 9.15 we're going to be discussing the Oscars for Nomadland and its director Chloe Zhao once again our email address backchat at rthk.hk joining us for the first uh, part of the discussion we have with now, Ryan Manuel, who's a managing director of Official China Limited, a research company based in Hong Kong, and chief Asia strategist for Silverhorn Investment Advisors. And also joining us, Paul Yip, the chair professor uh, in the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Once again, email is backchat at rthk.hk. We'll get to, we've got a few uh, comments, maybe we'll, we'll drop them in a little bit uh, later. Uh, Ryan Manuel, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. Okay, first of all, you know, the, the, the headline is, is, is very clear and very strong, is that uh, Xi Jinping, you know, said that extreme poverty had been completely eliminated from the mainland. First of all, I mean, um, do you believe that? Is that, is that an accurate uh, assessment of the situation? I, I have to be slightly pedantic first. I think it's 85 million rather than 850 million, um, although... Uh, that's, that's not, as you know, there it's still an enormous sum for an Australian like me. Uh, it's sort of. I think. I think. Yeah. I think. I think the eight. The eight hundred fifty million come is sort of since the seventies. I think that's a. Yeah. That, that's. That's. But it's. Yeah. It's the shift between. It's a really interesting point to sort of. I think start the discussion, which is the separation between lifting eight hundred fifty or eight hundred, you know, seven hundred, however many million enough out of poverty, i.e. giving them a, a chance to sort of enter into lower middle class or middle classes or, or even better. And then this sort of 85, 80 million who have been, you know, they're really destitute. And, and that's sort of these stubborn leftover, very, 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 very poor people who they're trying to lift up, appear in essence to make them just poorer or, or give them more aspirations. And to say that it's been eliminated, I mean, you can't eliminate poverty in that sense. So you can just lift standards. Um, to say, though, that they've managed to transfer a large, very large, from a sort of national perspective, sums of money into people's pockets, 
around very poor regions of China, um, I think they have succeeded. I, I think it's it's often under-recognised, actually. I mean, she made it his personal priority. Every sort of Chinese leader gets a couple of free kicks, so to speak. It's like, these are the three things I really, really care about. And she made the elimination of, of destitution one of his sort of free kicks. And I think he succeeded tremendously. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a genuine triumph. And in that sense, the rhetoric can seem jarring, <laughs> obviously, but we also need to recognise that 80-plus million people have, for the last three to four years, got a chunk of money that's allowed them to eat. And China, as a nation, has figured out how to get household transfers and, and other methods of payment into people's bank accounts, or that often don't have a bank account. They managed to get into their pockets, which is pretty incredible. So is there a, you know, a definition uh, for absolute poverty or extreme poverty? Um, the white paper mentioned that uh, now you know, around 30 million more people have access to safe drinking water and uh, high-quality power supply services. Uh, so these are some of the SDG goals. Uh, and um, so I'm just wondering, you know, how would you define e extreme poverty? Yeah, that's such a good question because, of course, <laughs> also what makes it extreme versus <laughs> less extreme, which is still deeply suboptimal. Um, a critique that one could, could lend at this program is to say that they've just redefined the problem and been like, well, now extreme poverty is, is, is a very, very, very low level and, and we'll just sort of lower the bar a little. And, and there's definitely some criteria nudging there. But on the whole, she... You know, as with all Chinese, Chinese programs don't tend to have the micro criteria done by the leader at the top. What instead they do is they say, well, this is where I want to go, and now all of the lower levels, the 90 million Communist Party members, the 45 million are public servants, you now have to figure out what that goal means to you. And so you talked about SDGs, and, and clearly that's important. But she didn't frame it in terms of SDGs. She didn't frame it in terms of anything like that. She just said, get rid of extreme poverty define how you, you mean that to be, and then I'll also put a national number, which is household income, uh, not individual income, and, and say that, that that's my number. Um, but, I mean, what's, what's, the, the thing is 30 million people being access, given access to drinking water is fabulous, but a, a, a lot of this program itself was probably more, I would interpret, as a success through its use of quite innovative schemes to get get money going in. I mean, there's a huge input from the large tech companies, Alibaba and Tencent, um, a lot of use of, of quite innovative uh, mobile payments that allowed household transfers to take place, i.e. if one person in the house has a mobile phone, the local leader managed to, to get money onto to that, that. That sort of meant that the, the household could access, have access to the funds. And so you have this thing where Yes, safe drinking water is a goal, and some people are going to say, well, yeah, we, we solved extreme poverty, and as part of that, we also got people drinking water. Um, but on the whole, it, it, it's taken at the national level as being the raising of household income. How did they do it? Was it basically giving money to the very poorest people? Is it as simple as that, from the state? I mean, I, I sort of gave probably too long an answer to the last question to 
to trail my code a bit for this one on that. They did it through a range of means, mm-hmm. largely through Xi allowing decentralization to an extent. Uh, he also sort of handled the problem to one of his, his Politburo members who did some really innovative stuff in terms of funds raising. Uh, he went to various very large businesses, SOEs, and again, the tech giants I talked about before, and said, um, you know, for the motherland, cough up. And they did. And so there was a part of how they did it by just <laughs> raising money. Um, and, and then sorry, sorry, so they just took voluntary, they went to the richest people and they said, give us some money, and then we get, they gave it to the poorest people. Companies. I mean, not, mm. not people. This wasn't an individual okay. philanthropy effort. This was a, a, a state-led, SOE-led... I mean, it, it, it's an unusual model for, for me, again, as an Australian, um, to, to sort of talk about. But by using these contributions to the state into a special fund, and then the tech giants, I mean, they're, they're huge research centres also established. You know, there's one at Qinghai, there's one at Beta. It's not a full centre, but, you know, there, there are people working solely on this question of, of how do you get money into people's pockets. Um, and that was personally funded, actually, by some of the, the tech giants themselves. Um, a, a very senior member of Alibaba paid for, say, the, the Beta one. And what they did is they used lessons learned from giant uh, rural surveys in, say, Indonesia, uh, which has very similar problems of eliminating extreme poverty because it's so... You know, it's an archipelago, so it's so spread out. It's very hard to get money or, or resources into households. And then they decentralised the problem down to the county level. There's 3,000 county-level party secretaries and held them accountable for what happened and said, like, guys, figure it out. Can, can I ask that? Because I know you've got to go in a moment. No, can, no. can you do this in other places? Is this, applica- this model applicable or is this unique to, to China? I mean, you, I, I noticed in your intro you talked about Hong Kong. I mean, it's, 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 it's a question of going to people where they are. I mean, China, it, it's not like China hadn't already tried to get these people out of poverty the first time. But what is applicable in that sense is, is there are some, you know, you need money. Um, and how you do that, be that through the arms of the state, or be that through philanthropy, or be that through a, a public-private partnership, is super important. But there is another part which I think is a little bit unique to China, which is, of course, that it has this astonishing technology ecosystem which is not present for most countries with extreme, destitute, with, with extreme poverty. I mean, and there aren't many places in the world where you have, frankly, quite world-leading technology, you know, fintech technology on your mobile phone, and you have tens of millions of, of people unable to feed themselves. And so there are definitely lessons in terms of the ability to get money into people's pockets, to use innovative forms of transfers. But, I mean, I I began life working in Latin America, and and a lot of those things have happened in the past. Um, What's what's sort of perhaps new here where lessons can be learned is the use of technology um, decentralised down where everybody... The, the party secretaries, in essence, their daily lives are all done in, in WeChat, so Tencent product, or, or using Alipay, say, an Alibaba product, and, and they knew how to use tech to, to sort of go out to some of these mountainous regions. Um, the other thing they did was very old school, excuse my phrase, is they used post offices. They used public services and WeChat or Alipay, WeChat Pay or Alipay together, so you could in other words, go to a post office and 
have, have the funds waiting for you to be transferred onto a mobile phone, that then you could transfer into things that you could take back to your household in, you know, same very mountainous or, or remote areas. Um, so there, there's some, some lessons I think we can, we can learn there, which is to give sums of money to decentralised leaders who have an incentive to make things happen and let them figure out their own ways of doing things. Um, I think there's a, some really amazing stories still to be told as well. Um, there sort of hasn't been that second wave of literature of people being like, mm. here's how I succeeded in, in Guangxi, you know, miscounting Guangxi. But you know, sort of those of us who, who watch it are, are probably waiting for that secondary literature to emerge and there'll be a, a ton of interesting lessons to learn. So, so you think this could be sustained? Because you have been talking about cash payments. I guess this is um, like a social welfare concept. But, uh, you know, would there be um, good business models in the rural area so that there is rural development and then, you know, the um, poor people can find jobs and, and make ends meet? I mean, we're talking there about development studies. It's, it's a field of, of, you know, I've devoted most of my life to, no doubt many people have, you can't say that you get money into people's pockets and they magically solve the world. No, but I think also it's really churlish to, to not say that three years of having enough to eat is a big deal. Um, so we, we don't know. I mean, there's a part that is a very valid critique that's to say that, well, that's great, but, you know, they, they were that extreme poverty already existed and, and this doesn't this is a band-aid solution. But there's another part which is to say that figuring out as a state how to get money into this group which previously were underserved despite state efforts to serve them could offer some hope. I mean I'm not saying it's like a magical silver bullet that suddenly has solved problems of development, but it's also I mean I, I come from a very remote part of Australia and, and ended up you know, I, I would have. I think there's huge lessons where I grew up, for example, just of if you can get resources out there once, you can do it again, and and that may mean some, you know, some level of grassroots entrepreneurship is able to to be stimulated. That may mean that there are other things that work. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that, that the Chinese Communist Party has uniquely solved economic development, which was perhaps the line that People's Daily took in its editorial on this. Uh, last week when it's talking about the five-year plan. Um, I don't quite support that conclusion. But there's definitely a part, which is if you've done it once, there, there's, there's hope to, to do it again. And, and I think that should be praised. I really do. Okay. Well, Raymond North, many thanks for joining us, Managing Director of Official China Limited, a uh, research company based in Hong Kong. Uh, Paul Yip, uh, Professor Yip, good morning to you. Thanks very much indeed for, for, for joining us. So um, uh, partly this discussion was inspired by an article that uh, you wrote in, in the uh, South China Morning Post, um, you know, asking whether there are lessons learned from poverty alleviation in the mainland that can be applied uh, in Hong Kong. From what you were hearing there about how it was done, um, uh, what, do you, what do you think about the prospects for Hong Kong? Could we... Can we learn uh, lessons there? Can we do? Can we work harder in a more in a, a more useful way to alleviate poverty here? Well, I, th I think the, I think what uh, Main in China has demonstrated. I think uh, if they set a target and then if they identify uh, some effective measure and then implement it diligently, it actually uh, they can make a they can make a difference. 
so the article what we wrote yesterday it is really is a reflection on Hong Kong. I mean, we have not set any target, and then we do not have any effective measure, and even we do not have a commitment. I think to achieve anything. You no, know? so I think that is um, for us. I think it is quite disappointing because uh, when we see in Hong Kong, I think we have seen the largest. I think poverty gap. I think in the high income society. Now we are talking about our Gini coefficient is is point five two three. Now so so it's one of the highest in the world. I think we are talking about how we enjoy the economic development, but it only benefits a few. I think we're still talking about over a million people living under poverty, and it seems that we just do not have any uh, sort of commitment or any motivation. I think to do something on this. So we thought, well, I think uh, although some of the measures which is doing in China might not be applicable in Hong Kong, but I think it is the mindset of the government. You know, it is really helping those people who cannot help themselves or who are vulnerable and who are living with, with, with this structural poverty problem that we really have to do something about. Uh, Professor Yip, uh, as Ryan hey, Manuel said, uh, the involvement of business and public-private partnerships in poverty alleviation in China has been quite remarkable. But here in Hong Kong, I don't really hear about um, you know how businesses could be involved, uh, how you know uh, big giants like uh, Alibaba and Tencent have helped uh, you know and have actually gone to the villages and you know think about using digital payments. Uh, to uh, bring cash to uh, very poor households, this sort of thing. Uh, could this be a lesson for Hong Kong uh, to get the businesses involved? Well, I, I don't think that, uh, I think you need to have sort of intervention or some sort of encouragement or some sort of policy. I think, I think, uh, I think it is implemented or it is advanced by by the central government. I mean to encourage these people. I think to go into, of course, now we are talking about promoting the social corporate responsibility. But I think in Hong Kong, I think uh, from this aspect, I think because I think um, the Hong Kong government still took a laser fear um, attitude, you know, I think will let the system or let the market will look after themselves. But what happened, I think the market, the system itself, I think we do have some structural problem, and then we do need some sort of intervention. I mean, from the government now. For example, I mean, if we can implement some taxation relief, I mean, for this sort of uh, big corporation, I think who are willing to contribute, or who are going to create jobs, or who are going to, uh, to work an additional mouse, I think for these uh, poor people, then I think if they can get some recognition, I think that will give them some incentive. I think to more proactively, I think to take part in this sort of poverty elevation. But, but at this moment, that's I a bit. But that's a bit ironic, isn't it? I mean, you know, letting them off tax. Surely the tax should be used for exactly this purpose to help the people who, the disadvantaged in our society. Oh, we are not saying that they do not have to pay tax. Yeah. But but, but but what I am saying that I think if they have some incentive, like for example, if I invest a hundred dollars, I think on this, I think you, you might have a hundred fifty percent of the tax rebate. I mean, it just. Just like the R&D, the research and development. I mean, 
if you talk about mm. poverty elevation, it's an investment on the mental wellness or the well-being of the population, then I think that should be, dis- that should be encouraged as what we have been trying to do in the R&D now. So I think it is really, it's a matter of priority or whether the government see this as their responsibility, I think, to do something. And if they cannot do it by themselves, and of course, I think the participation of these private sector or the business, they are important. And me, for goodness sakes, I mean, we are talking about uh, 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 our minimum wages uh, are still so low. I mean, we are still talking about, uh, I think, there are 5% of the working population, they are working, but they still are living under the poverty line. So it actually, there's a lot of things that the, that the, that the private company, they can contribute. I think if they're willing, I think, to pay, I think, especially this sort of low-wages people, a bit more money, and then such that they can enjoy or they can uh, earn a bit more decent salary, I think, to, to bring the food, I think, to the family. Okay, but uh, going back to the figures, uh, if we have one million people living below the poverty line, uh, what is the root cause of that? Uh, some people say that it's because uh, you know our population is aging, and others say that we have more um, mainland new immigrants, and so you know the measures could not be long term and sustained. Uh, what what's your view on the on the root cause? Well, I think we, yes, I think we do have an aging population, and then the poverty rate among the elderly people is indeed higher than the population average. I mean, we are talking about, about 30%. But what happened that we still have about 300,000 people, I think, who are the working poor. Now, that, that is the structural problem. That is the people who are not willing to, who are not the ones who are not going to work. They are working, but they are earning a very low salary and which they cannot, I mean, support their family. When we look at the, at the poverty number in 2019, I think what we have uh, what we have seen it is the family of a household of three or four. I think there is an increase of the number of people who are poor. Now, in a household of three or four, there's actually the one there's a one uh, there's one member in this household. They are working, but they are working, but they are salary they do not earn more, um, over the sixteen thousand dollars. So based on our relative poverty nine, that means this uh, sort of household, they're still being classified as poor. So, so what we are seeing is that there are Hong Kong people who are working hard, who are diligently doing the work, but their wages level still has been kept very low, such that I think they're still uh, um, living under the poverty nine. Mm. Of course, you know, the, we've had this debate many, many times and the, the points that, that, that keep coming up is, or one point is that, um, uh, you know, that uh, poverty should be looked at uh, comparatively and uh, the poverty line is drawn, you know, in relation to, to incomes. And there isn't the sort of, they would claim that there isn't the sort of extreme poverty uh, in Hong Kong that you would find in, in China or a developing country or something. Even the poorest people um, can, can survive. Um, so um, it's really a question of inequality. And if you talk about the Gini coefficient or something like that, that's very often, that's usually 
you know, phrased in terms of uh, income. Um, but of course, um, income, old people, uh, presence of a lot of old people kind of skews that because they don't need the income or they don't have the income in the same way. And also that the, that usually that doesn't take into account all the measures and the, the, the very large budget, the, the very large amounts that the government actually spends on, on social welfare uh, in one form or another. Um, so, you know, I think the government would say there isn't perhaps that much of a problem. I think that that is uh, not quite true. I mean, yes, I think uh, uh, the government indeed, I mean, has spent uh, a lot of money on social welfare. I mean, we are talking about from uh, I think from 30 billion, I think, that to up to 90 billion, I think, in the last six years. You know, well, I mean, and I don't think that sort of uh, that sort of scale of increase in the social the social welfare they are sustainable. But but what? I'm trying to argue it is it is sometimes it's not the amount of money you spend it's whether you spend the money you spend the money effectively you actually helping the people that get out of the poverty now it is no good you're spending money you're keeping the to keep the to keep the people i think still they, they are still in poor so what we trying to do is just trying to create a platform create more opportunity i mean for those people who are poor then because of your investment, because of your expenditure, you get them out of the poverty. But what we have seen now is that there is a a percentage, not a small, uh, not a small percentage of the population. It is because of the wages level, because of our uh, um, uh, we do not have a very favorable working environment, and then we keep them poor. Now, just for example, when we talk about the single parents family because of the inadequate supply of the childcare services. So there are some parents who like to come out to work, okay. but because we do not have the support, and then they then they have to rely on the social welfare. Okay, well, well let's 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 uh, just take a pause. Uh, we've got a break now for the for the news at nine o'clock. We'll continue the discussion uh, after the uh, news. Uh, please join in. You can email bankchat at rthk.hk or call us on two three three eight eight two six six. We're also going to be talking about the uh, Oscars and the success of Nomadland. The weather forecast: cloudy with occasional showers. Uh, temperatures lingering around twenty four degrees, twenty three degrees. The latest readings with a relative humidity now of eighty seven percent. Ecological toll, doubling the risk of depression and almost quadrupling the risk of suicide. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Bank Chat on a Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about uh, poverty alleviation uh, in the mainland and its uh, applicability, some of the lessons that might be applied uh, in Hong Kong and in other countries. Uh, we're joined now by Professor Paul Yip from the Department of uh, Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. Also joining us now is Professor Ho Lok Sang, Pan Su Tong, Shanghai, Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute of uh, Lingnan University. Later, we're going to be talking about the success of uh, Nomad Land uh, in the Oscars and its uh, director, Chloe Zhao. Uh, if you want to comment, please uh, email bankchat.rthk.hk. We'll read out your messages, or we'll do our best to read out your messages. Uh, or you can just call us on 233-88266. Join the discussion. Uh, okay, some uh, thoughts from uh, listeners on uh, the first part of the uh, programme this morning and on the topic uh, today. 
Uh, Alan says, so she has declared that poverty is wiped out. That's why every Wumao is obliged to state something like 700 million lifted out of poverty in every discussion, as if that somehow excuses any violence or oppression. Now, it's unpatriotic to point out that some people, many in Hong Kong, still live in poverty, where the gap between the ultra-rich and the poor is huge. How did China do this? By industrialization, using investment and technology from the West, and then selling goods to them. On balance for the world, a good thing, but many in the West lost out as industry and jobs moved to China. That's uh, from uh, Alan. Vic says both poverty and CPI data are skewed by the database. Governments smudge the data to suit their own purposes. China's vision and determination is commendable and one has to appreciate the progress they have made, but hardly good enough unless they find ways to bring down the ever-widening wealth gap. Personally, wouldn't be surprised if my personal taxation is higher than the top five property tycoons in Hong Kong. What does it say about the database? And uh, equity, that's uh, from Vic. Uh, Anthony says, unfortunately, when the poor in Xinjiang got rich and moved from their slums to modern apartments, it was depicted as forcing them to move out from their own lifestyle and fit into the Communist Party living conditions. That's uh, from uh, Anthony. And uh, Matthew says, the choice and ordering of today's two backchat topics tells us a lot about where Hong Kong is and where we are headed. Poverty alleviation in mainland China? Seriously? Where did this topic come from? First, it's difficult to see how this could be a current affair relative, relevant to Hong Kong people. A quick Google search of the term revealed no news on the topic since three weeks ago when the state media mouthpieces had a propaganda push on it. Second, how is it possible to credibly discuss, evaluate, let alone take lessons learned from an initiative when it takes place under a regime with no transparency or accountability for its actions? Uh, or believable reporting? Has there been any independent media or NGO review or corroboration of the programme success of the, or the chairman's claims? Of course not. Independent NGOs and media are not allowed to operate <coughs> in China. Why is that if everything is so perfect? A discussion of this topic based on CCP propaganda is as useful as talking about mainland GDP rates. Their claims that the entire country is virtually COVID-free or that Chairman Xi has successfully eradicated corruption. Of course, the second topic, and censorship of something as benign as an Oscar speech and ceremony, is much more relevant to us, but will only get 10 minutes at best. In relation to the first topic and the Chairman's declaration of victory over poverty, I guess the infamous Chloe Zhao quote says all we need to know. It goes back to when I was a teenager in China, being in a place where there are lies everywhere. Oh, that's why the Oscars were censored. That is from Matthew. Matthew thank you very much indeed i hope uh, the program so far has uh, changed your mind about the uh, about the usefulness uh, of the uh, of the topic um uh, paul yep we were just talking to you in the in, in the first part of the program uh, uh, i mean we didn't really sort of touch on the applicability of of um uh, those lessons in in China are, are there specific things because we were talking for example about we were hearing from ryan manuel uh, about you know, actually getting the money to the individuals uh, through um, financial technology. And uh, is, is there a lesson there in, in what we do in Hong Kong? Is, this, is there something we can apply there? Well, I think if you can see how we uh, disperse this $5,000, I think it has gone so much trouble already. You know? So I think, I think in a lot of sense, I think in this uh, um, fintech or in this sort of... Uh, the electronically, how to deal with the money we are so left behind. 
and actually, I think I think technology-wise, I think uh, in a lot of aspects, I think we really have uh, much room for for improvement. But the other thing, I think what we think what it need to learn is, is I think the the government official they will hold accountable. I mean, for any improvement or or uh, uh, any progress, I mean, of the work. I think that is something that I think we do not see any accountability. I think in the Hong Kong government sees. I think that is something that I think we should work on too. Um, what about um, uh, people? Well, we have talked about the cash, we have talked about the policy, but I do notice that um, in China um, they put a lot of efforts on upskilling and reskilling and uh, on a- having access of education to almost 90% you know, of the more destitute areas. Uh, but you know, we, uh, this is not a problem in Hong Kong, or is it a problem in Hong Kong? Well, I think we are talking about is a different scale of development. Of course, I think back in China, I think in the rural area, I mean, most of them, they are not educators. So uh, to give them some sort of skills, uh, training, it is very really important. And actually, when we see the story as how they introduce some sort of agricultural development in the rural area so that they can increase, I think, their skill, how to raise a chicken and how to raise a pig. I mean, these are very, very important. But... By the same token, I think when we talk about in Hong Kong, we are not talking about raising the chicken and pig, but what we talk about, how can we improve on the, the technical skill of the Hong Kong young people and also provide the retraining, I think, for the not-so-young people and such that it can really I mean, meet the demands of the um, of the um, of the uh, the need of the employment. I think what we have seen, we are mean this uh, training and retraining. I think for the uh, for life course, I think it is uh, not so, so much uh, well developed in Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, Holoksan, good morning to you. Uh, good morning. I think I think one thing the the government would say, as, as I was saying in the first part of the program, is that um, that there, there is no kind of extreme poverty or very very little extreme poverty uh, in Hong Kong of the, of the kind that was in in the mainland, uh, and also that the government works very hard through social welfare, spends a lot of money uh, uh, distributing money and, and providing free healthcare and housing and and all those other things, and so perhaps um, the uh, inequality is not really a serious problem in in Hong Kong. Would, would you agree with those? Well, of course, uh, of course, inequality is a serious problem. Um, um, I think there's no doubt about that. But uh, uh, the effort by the government in terms of alleviating that uh, um, uh, inequality has been uh, quite remarkable. Uh, if you look at the Gini coefficient after the, uh, the policy effects have been accounted for, the tax and transfers, and all the um, uh, subsidies, uh, implicit subsidies and everything, um, the uh, Gini coefficient actually has not risen. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at uh, the, the gross figure, it has risen. So, so you can see that actually uh, uh, there is, it's still effective. But I'm, uh, having said that, uh, even after the uh, application of these uh, measures, the uh, inequality level is still pretty high, still, still uh, something like 4.7, something like that. Uh, 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 um, I mean, 0.47 uh, uh, or 47%, something like that. And it's, uh, of course, much, much lower than the uh, uh, 53% something. Okay, so um, uh, it has been effective, but uh, uh, it, the 
the extent of inequality is still pretty pretty high. Um, again, what is the root cause? Is it housing affordability, um, or is it you know is a mismatch of jobs? Uh, what is it? Well, Aging housing population? affordability, of course, is a problem, and exactly because of that, uh, there is this uh, proposal to uh, uh, impose some some uh, rent control for the subdivided flats. And I think that is a, a right direction, and uh, 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 and that is uh, necessary because uh, the government has not been able to to provide public housing in, uh, to, to match the needs, and and I think that is uh, uh, regrettable, and I think uh, a much bigger effort has to be made in that direction. Um, and and how much of what uh, happened in the mainland could be applied here in Hong Kong? We, well, were here, we were hearing, for actually, example, that we are talking about different things altogether. Mm -hmm. You know, because uh, in uh, on the mainland, the the main focus uh, in the, in the past has been uh, eradication of extreme poverty, and that extreme poverty is 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 a very low level. And uh, if you just uh, look at the official definition, extreme poverty is defined as earning less than six hundred twenty U.S. dollars per year. You see, it's extremely low. Mm. Uh, so, so uh, definitely, Hong Kong, Hong Kong people, uh, I would say, ninety-nine point nine percent would be above that. Uh, and uh, uh, so, extreme poverty in that kind of definition is not a problem in Hong Kong. But uh, and the poverty line, as defined uh, officially, is a relative poverty measure. Okay, which is uh, uh, earning less than fifty percent, uh, earning less than fifty percent of the median income. And I think uh, un under that kind of definition, of course, uh, there will forever be, 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 be uh, po uh, relative poverty. Uh, you know, one of the things the mainland did we were hearing was simply to go to the richest people, or to the richest companies, sorry, to the richest companies, and, and appealing to their, whatever, their patriotism, say, um, uh, we want some money to give to the very poorest people. And, and they did it. And uh, Paul Yip was saying, well, you could do this, you could give tax breaks or something like that. But this, the same kind of principle. Right, much, could... much more than that. Mm. I, I think the main measure is, uh, is not that, but uh, uh, improving the infrastructure in the um, uh, poor areas so that they, they can uh, um, uh, find a way of alleviating <laughs> their poverty uh, on their own. If you look at the, um, the uh, recent full figures, let me tell you this. Uh, uh, last year, the, uh, China's uh, uh, economic growth for the entire year was 2.3%. But then there are some provinces that are well above average, and among those are poor provinces. Like, for example, Tibet uh, grew 7.8%, way, way above that. And then Guizhou is, uh, or used to be a very poor province, now it's growing at 4.5%, and then Yunnan and Ningxia and Gansu and, and even Xinjiang. Xinjiang was growing at 3.4%, and that's well above the, the national average. So why is that possible? And that is because the infrastructure has been so much improved so that they have access to market. And then uh, they also do this, uh, w w what they call east-west pairing, in which, uh, for example, a, a, a province like Jiangsu, which is very advanced, both uh, technologically and also uh, commercially, everything, you see. And Jiangsu had uh, helped uh, build various science parks in Xinjiang. 
and they also uh, help improve the agriculture there uh, through innovations. You see, so so the infrastructure uh, injection of infrastructure, you know, the building of rural roads and also the speed rail and so on. Of course, they that helped a lot. Well, uh, is that applicable in Hong Kong? Because we, I mean, the have, government has been doing that, haven't they? They have been building roads and well, tunnels. Well, that is and so not on. the problem in Hong Kong. They, mm. The the main problem in Hong Kong, as as everybody acknowledges, is uh, is primarily uh, housing and uh, the shortage of of developable land. Uh, mature land that can be developed for housing and for for commercial purposes, but of course, for the time being, because of COVID nineteen and the and the very serious recession, of course, now we have a very high vacancy rate for commercial properties. But at the time when we were growing very fast, we did not have the land. You see, unlike uh, Singapore, Singapore had been reclaiming and uh, uh, um, uh, increasing increasing the, the land um, uh, um, um, by by leaps and bounds. But in Hong Kong, you know, um, we we haven't increased much developable land. So so that uh, uh, even presently, the amount of land that is available for for housing is seven percent of the entire territory. And our residential land for our much, much bigger population is much smaller than that of Singapore. You see, so, so, so land shortage is, 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 a, is a continuing problem that we have to deal with. Okay, well, one email here. This is from uh, Andrew Kay, who says, So, your guest promotes taking money from successful companies to reduce general poverty. Can we ask your shareholder activist for his views on that? I think that's a reference to David Webb uh, and to uh, Paul Yip. Um, Professor Yip, you know, it's, it's not the Hong Kong way, or it hasn't been the Hong Kong way to, to, uh, to uh, ask large companies uh, to um, make donations uh, in, in that way we were hearing about, you know, being done in the mainland. Uh, you know, rather the, uh, the business community have always had a, a big part to play in the, you know, the, all the running and the politics of, of Hong Kong. Um, do you think there's, uh, you know, would you be worried that that's not, that that's not Hong Kong if we, uh, if we start to uh, bleed the rich? I think uh, some of the large companies, as far as I know, they are actually very proactively in doing some of the work already, you know. I think uh, some of them, they do the Project Weekend, Project by Wolf, you know. I mean, they actually, they are donating their money, I think they're helping. The some of the developers are very reluctant, aren't they? Yeah, um, yeah. But, but at the same time, what I'm, what I'm saying is that not just doing some good after you make the money, but actually while you're making the money, you can do some good too. I mean, you can make uh, the work itself, pay your employee a bit more, I mean, create a more fr family-friendly environment and such that I think the young people, I mean, they have more opportunity to to develop. So I think when we talk about the life chance, I think a lot of big companies, I mean, they can do a bit more, I mean, to our young people, I mean, more skill training and more opportunity. I mean, that is the most effective way, I think, to fundamentally address, I think, the poverty uh, situation in Hong Kong. You know? Okay, well, Paul Yip, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, Professor Yip uh, from the Department of Social Work and Social Administration at the University of Hong Kong. He's the chair professor there. And then many thanks to Professor Holok Sang, Pansu Tong, Shanghai, Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. Uh, an email from Max who said, I listened with interest this morning to your discussion of poverty alleviation. Unfortunately, I was not able to catch the name of your guest from Australia. That was Ryan Manuel. He's based in Hong Kong. Uh, you could uh, Google him and find out uh, contact details. Ryan 
Chen-Manuel, who's the managing director of Official China Limited and uh, also an, an academic. And uh, Scholar, um, thanks one and all for joining us this morning. A uh, quick email from Martin uh, relate, relating to our discussion yesterday. Uh, Martin says the US military produces more greenhouse gas emissions than 140 countries combined. How sincere are the US promises about emissions reduction and tough targets when so far the US military is deliberately exempted from any climate uh, agreements? And uh, he has a link to a story from uh, Newsweek uh, uh, making uh, that claim that uh, the US military produces more greenhouse gas emissions than 140 countries. Uh, combined. Um, many thanks for that. Finally today, uh, as I mentioned, we wanted to, get to um, go to the movies and um, reflect on the uh, success, uh, best director, best picture, best actress um, for Nomadland and its director, Chloe Zhao, in our uh, central studio is Howard Elias, a film critic. Howard, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, and uh, thank you to Matthew for his email who said that we need more than 10 minutes to discuss this topic. <laughs> You've got nine. No, I'll give <laughs> yeah, you ten. I know this, I, I'll yeah. Give you ten. Yeah. Uh, so, um, is, okay, have you seen the movie? I think yeah, you have, have seen the movie. Yeah. Is it any good? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Actually, I, I was not that keen on it, mm -hmm. but I saw it on a screener. I saw it at home on a small screen, and as... Um, um, Frances McDormand said yesterday at the Oscars, see it on the biggest possible screen. And I think she's right. I think you do need to see it on a big screen to appreciate the uh, magnitude. Why? Why, why? why did it become so popular in 2020? <sighs> well, you know, it touches a few nerves right now during this COVID time where there's a lot of loneliness, uh, insularity. Uh, there's you know a growing wealth gap not just here and you know in America as well, and and I think people uh, identified with that. Maybe they maybe they they saw the lifestyle of these nomads as being a, a bit sexy, and and maybe some people are considering doing it now. I don't know. Is it? I mean, yeah. It, uh, is it? Does it paint them in a positive light? Oh yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's it's not an easy life these people live. Um, you know, they have they have no insurance. They have you know they have no safety. Their safety net is each other. Um, you know, they're fully reliant upon each other and upon nature, I guess. Um, so it's not a, it's not an easy existence. But I'm, I'm sure some people might find it uh, quite attractive. But you, you're sort of slightly disappointed by it. You're not that impressed. Why not? I, I didn't think it was the best picture of the year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's, but you know, the Oscars never pick the best best picture. Mm -hmm. They don't what, have a good track record. What was what were the weaknesses then? Uh, to me, uh, uh, it it look it's shot beautifully. I got to mm -hmm. say this: it, it really is shot beautifully. The performances are all excellent. Look, most of the actors are real nomads. Uh, with the exception of the two lead actors, I think everybody else in the film is a nomad. Um, so there isn't a lot of quote-unquote acting going on there. Um, to me, I I didn't I didn't resonate, or it didn't re the the topic didn't resonate so much with me. I guess. Hmm. What, what about the the direction? What about Chloe Zhao's job? 
look, it was very solid. I've seen a few of her films. Mm-hmm. You know, she ha- she has a she has a point of view. She likes capturing Middle America. You know, these these grand vistas. You know, the the big skies. This is her thing, which is very nice. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I'd like to see her do something else. Well, she is going to do something else. She's going to be. Well, she is. She has already. It's already in the can. In November, um, uh, she's directing a Marvel film. It's coming out. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Wow. Yeah, external, right? External, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so she's Chinese. Uh, she was born in Beijing, but um, she was educated in the United States, and uh, she has been doing a lot of um, independent films. So, what 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 is uh, what, what's happening? I mean, um, you know, in, in the macro sense, in that these Asian and you know female uh, movie directors are there many of them now. Uh, and are they making a difference, uh, you know, in America? I think these are just early days. Um, you know, we are seeing in, in the independent sphere a lot more people of color. And certainly we saw that at, at the Oscars. Well, we didn't see it yesterday at the Oscars because we weren't allowed to see it yesterday at the Oscars. But that's another story. Um, but, uh, you know, we are seeing more people of color, um, you know, coming to the to the front positions in uh, the industry. So I think we are going to see more uh, Asians, more women um, directing films and directing major films. They are directing films, but now they're going to be directing more major films that we are going to be able to see, that more people are going to be able to see. What, what do you make of the fact that it wasn't, uh, well, first of all, that it wasn't shown on, on Hong Kong television? And, and also the pretty disastrous viewing figures, I think, for the... For well, they've the been going, look, they've been going down for mm. years. That's nothing new. Mm. And... I think, you know, in this time of COVID, uh, first of all, the, the, the broadcast was delayed for a few months because of, the, because of COVID. Uh, and I think, you know, people are, are, are exhausted. I know I'm exhausted. So I, I think we need to cut them a little, little bit of slack this year. Hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, and what about the, the, the reaction on the mainland? We've been hearing, you know, that uh, there was no mention of this in uh, the official media and on social media. Uh, I think the, you know, posts were just removed, basically. Or, yeah, or by, they weren't allowed. If you yeah, by about 12 o'clock yesterday, the they were taken off. Uh, which is extraordinary. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, it's rather sad. But, you know, it, to me, the bottom line is that had people in China and Hong Kong been able to watch the broadcast yesterday, they would have heard Tyler Perry's eloquent speech about refusing to hate. And uh, to me, that's the bottom line. Mm. Okay. Um, Johnny, uh, in an email, says... um I refer to your top-of-the-hour news story regarding the Oscar winners. Uh, I'm all in favour of being politically correct, but why does the BBC refer to director Chloe Zhao as a person of colour? Now, you just did that as well. <laughs> okay, Johnny, well, Johnny says, why can't it simply describe her as Asian? I'm Hong Kong Chinese and have never been described as a person of colour. By categorising everyone who isn't white, whatever white means, as per- of people of colour, the BBC and other Western media are simply creating more division and segregation rather than promoting harmony and unity. RTHK isn't helping by broadcasting the BBC experts. It comes from Johnny. Any thoughts on that, Howard? Well, look, as you said, I said person of colour as well. Okay, so she's an Asian. She's both. Hmm. You know. would, you, would you recommend it? Would you recommend people watch it? Yeah, for sure. Look, it's not a bad film. It wasn't my favourite. Um, what was your favourite? Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Okay. Yeah. 
to me, that was a much more powerful film. Look, they're very different films. Look, it is, it's a beautiful film. It's well acted. It's, it's very competently directed. Uh, yeah, for sure. Look, it, and it shows a part of America, a side of America that few people know about, let alone see. Mm. Okay, well, um, last year, uh, the Korean movie Parasite you know, got the best picture, and that surprised a lot of people. And this year, that didn't surprise people? Didn't surprise me at all. Okay, but you, you are living in Hong Kong, that's yeah. why. Um, and then this year, um, they gave the Best Director Award to an Asian woman. Yeah. Uh, a Chinese woman. And Best Supporting Actress, uh, I think, went yeah, to... Yeah, Best Supporting Actress went to Korean um, Actress uh, in, in another Minari in, in the Korean film. So what, what's happening there? Uh, why, why is this sudden interest um, in Asia? or the, Has Hollywood changed? I think, yeah, look, I think there's, it's both. I think certainly there is more interest in Asian films. Look, Korea is making really good films now. And, and look, now there's a lot of money in China that they can make, uh, you know, nice looking films. I saw a film last night by Jung Yi Mo. Um, that was absolutely beautiful. It wasn't a good film at all, but it was it was a well well made film, very stylish film. So there's money there to make good film to make you know classy looking films, not necessarily good films, but classy films. Um, so the, so there is that interest and the ability there, uh, and because of that, we are now seeing more opportunities for Asian actors to be in 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 movies that. Uh, let's say Americans and and the world get to see you know even Mortal Kombat, which is playing here now, um, it features um, uh, Asian actors who live in uh, other countries. You know I don't want to say people of color, but uh, you know we have a Canadian uh, Chinese. There's a German Chinese. There's an Indonesian actor. It's fantastic that we get to see different faces that we're used to on the big screen. Okay, that's a positive. All right, S says uh, there are also lots of documentaries of nomads in real life living in Inner Mongolia and also in Saudi Arabia, which show how people actually live. I would find that more interesting, um, says S. And uh, on our earlier topic, Jay says the $5,000 handout is an insult to the poor. We have to pay for our rent, internet, our phone, our kids books, our masks, our electricity. This doesn't even include our food. And you say, go and spend money we haven't got so we can use our coupon. Are you out of your head? That's from Jay, who said the poor in China... Sorry, this is from Dave, who says the poor in China may not have had anything, but they probably didn't owe money. As soon as you build cities, you produce people in debt. Do you need a computer? Do you need a TV? Do you need a car? Bicycles are always good for China. Now we have electric ones too. Do we need to take out mortgages for kids to study? That, as I say, uh, is from uh, Dave. Uh, Dave and S, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Howard, thank you very much indeed. Good to see you again. Uh, Here's the weather just before we go. It's going to be cloudy uh, with occasional showers today. Temperatures lingering around 24 degrees uh, during the day and the outlook the showers will be more frequent in the following couple of days and the weather will improve and be hot during the day on friday 23 degrees at the moment and a relative humidity of 86 percent this quarter's demand notes for rates and government rent have been posted the rates concession has already been reflected but there is no concession for government rent remember to pay by april 30th or you'll have to pay a surcharge the demand note also shows the rateable value after the general revaluation. Any objections to the new rateable value must be submitted in writing by the end of May. If you haven't received the demand note, please call the Rating and Valuation Department on 21520 111. 931, the news with Samantha Butler. 
The government says future travel bubbles will only be open to Hong Kong people who've been fully vaccinated. The Secretary for Commerce, Edward Yao, said those who were medically unfit for a jab would be exempt. The government announced a bubble with Singapore would start from late May. The U.S. has announced it'll begin sharing its supplies of AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine with other countries once a safety review has been completed. The White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told journalists the American public could rely on other vaccines. And experts say one in seven pregnancies worldwide ends in miscarriage. An international team of 31 researchers compiled data from around the world and say some 23 million miscarriages occur every year, but the actual tally was sure to be higher due to underreporting. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all. Good morning. Good morning. The morning. You never face chat with me, Phil. Good morning. He's got the Tom and Jerry type violence. It's a great experience if you just want to get a bit of zing. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday. Back again for more here on The Morning Brew. Well, as it's Tuesday, I'm going to say hi to Jared Watt after 10.30 for a bit of Aussie news. Anzac Day was two days ago, so we'll have a bit on that. Plus three ripper tracks from the land down under. After 11, Dr. Marion Pierce is going to be talking about the inevitable ecological downsides of the COVID restrictions. One of those things that, let's see if it's just unavoidable. After 12, Maurice Misalowski is going to be with us for this week's Biz Futurism Spot Live from Melbourne. Apple has unveiled its latest goodie bag and the reaction has been somewhat, meh. I'm dead curious about the iPad. I mean, if you like me, you're a huge iPad user. Doing all the research on that, well, let's see what Maurice has to say. Oh, yeah, and we're going to find out if the idea of a floating space elevator is ever going to get past B1. And Microsoft released the computer mouse today in 1981. But guess what? They borrowed the idea from someone else. Oh, surely not. Let's get going. Got the Human League. Open your heart. It's 26 minutes to 10 here on Radio 3. (laughs) 